This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It can be found on page 1001 in the Black Pew Bible. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Uh, yeah, if you're new here, we're glad you're here. So welcome everybody this morning. In, in, uh, uh, in J.I. Packer's book, in J.I. Packer's book, God Has Spoken, he writes, Revelation is a divine activity, not therefore a human achievement. Revelation is not the same thing as discovery or the dawning of insight, or the emerging of a bright idea. Revelation does not mean man finding God. It means God finding man. God sharing his secrets with us. God showing us himself. In Revelation, God is the agent as well as the object. It is not just that men speak about God or for God. God speaks for himself, for himself and talks to us in person. The New Testament message is that in Christ, God has spoken a word for the world, a word to which all people in all ages are summoned to listen and respond. So our text this morning, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So would it not be right for us this morning to pause and attempt to absorb that? Attempt to get that statement, to take it in. God speaks. He speaks. During the time of the Old Testament prophets, he spoke. And in these days, these last days, he speaks. He's speaking. He's saying things. He's saying things. All the noise in our modern lives can be deafening. And the sheer kind of quantity of auditory distractions alone make it difficult to even think and remember that God's talking to us. To hear his voice. God says things. He says things to you, and he says things to me through his son. God's not blind, and he's not deaf, and he's not silent. He talks. He talks. He speaks. And this morning, we're talking about the fact that Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center in the sermon series that we are in. Another way to say it is that Jesus is central. And so you ask the question immediately, central to what? What is he central to? And the short answer to that question is he's central to everything. Everything. 
He's the center of anything that is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and by him was everything, that, everything made that was made, John tells us. But that's almost, for human beings, that's almost too much to get or too much to wrestle with. It's too big of a bite to bite off. That's too broad. So that's that the, the, the hurdle there is that we aren't able to get our arms around it. We ain't, aren't able to get our affections around that kind of concept in a meaningful way. And so what I want to do is I want us to meditate on the centrality of Jesus and find a couple specific examples or specific illustrations or specific realities or contexts by which he is the center for us to focus on this morning. I want to focus on them as inroads for our affection for Jesus. So today we'll spend time trying to see that Jesus is the center of history, that Jesus is the center of the scriptures, and that Jesus is the center of our lives, of our lives. So with that, would you all bow your heads with me and I'll pray for us and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to apply your word to our hearts in ways that dig us up. Dig us up. Unearth stuff that we have held on to. Unearth stuff that we are blind to on purpose. Unearth places in our hearts that we need to let go of things. Ask for forgiveness. Would you apply your word to us and affect us, change us, transform us, correct us, instruct us, make us humble people. Don't let us be stiff-necked. Don't let us be stubborn. I ask that you would uh, break through places that we are resistant to change and resistant to hearing you and believing you. Would you do that through your word this morning, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I'm going to mention or talk about or meditate on is that Jesus is the center of history. When, when God speaks, when God speaks, it isn't like anything else in the universe. It isn't a small thing. When the writer of Hebrews explains this, he is not giving us some obscure global news from the other side of the world. He isn't announcing something that's detached and removed and separate from their universe as we know it. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And then there was light. When God utters communication, it is universe altering. Sometimes this word accomplishes its purpose immediately. And sometimes it takes centuries or ages for God to accomplish the goals that he is after. In Isaiah 55, 11, it says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The New King James Version says, it does not return to me void. So God's word doesn't function in the universe like a boomerang or an echo. He doesn't say things just to hear his own voice. 
It's efficacious, which means his word is successful in producing a desired end or a desired result. And that's going to be uh, important later because we, we should be asking what's the desired end or the desired result of speaking to us through Jesus. And we'll get there. But for now, I want us to understand something. I want us to understand that the communication of God operating on the universe doesn't just bounce off, doesn't just bounce off the way our own communication to our children might bounce off when we ask them to put their jacket on or put their shoes on. We give an instruction or we communicate an expectation and many times it's anything but producing a desired result right? It's not that way with God. Long ago, God talked through the prophets. And with the prophets, God literally said things like, I will put my words into your mouth. And when you speak, it will be my words that you will be saying. And as he spoke, he was effecting and accomplishing his purpose. God's speech has purposes. God's speech isn't careless or pointless or aimless. It's teleological. That means it has an aim. It has a purpose. It has a plan. It is executing objectives constantly constantly. His word is accomplishing goals. And the ultimate reason that God does anything is for the praise of the glory of his grace in Christ. This is my reasoning to put Jesus at the center of history is that all of history is gathered in and aimed and put together to funnel into Christ and his moment on the cross. I could say that Jesus is the center of the entire human story. Everything before it was leading to this and everything after it is shaped through it. His glory is the point of the story of mankind. He's the center of what's been created, and his life, death, and resurrection is the hinge on which the story moves into new creation and all eternity future. That's thinking about it in a kind of linear way, as Jesus being the governing point that orients both eternity past and eternity future, including the history of humanity. But he's also the center, as in he holds this story together. We tend so easily to be timid or myopic about our own personal faith. But Jesus isn't one option among many legitimate alternatives. He's Lord. And he's the only Lord. He's the reason, he's the reason that the universe exists. The story of Christianity is not a story of a few religious people in the world. It's an explanation for the universe. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says, Blessed Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on the earth. This kind of language to unite all things in him. The fullness of time chose us before the foundations of the world, predestined us according to the purpose of his will. How easily we can gloss over verses like this and think or even feel like Jesus makes sense merely out of our little lives. Or that Jesus brings some sort of cohesion to our personal and particular kind of view of the world. When in reality, Jesus, his existence and his pre-existence makes sense of reality, period. Period. Without Jesus, it doesn't make sense to talk about things making sense. Without Jesus, you and I don't exist. Without Jesus, the history of redemption doesn't exist. Without Jesus, the plans and purposes of God don't happen. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So before there was a thing called ages, God's eternal will existed and his purposes were being designed for a world where you would be saved. He gave you a holy calling before the ages began. Christ is the center of the gospel and he's the center of that holy calling. Everything in the universe has led to him and for him and then through him, everything is being reconciled and remade. He's the the center of history. He was long ago when God spoke through the prophets and he is right now as God speaks in these last days through his son. Graham Goldsworthy summarized Jesus' substance in history this way. Quote, Thus, the word of God is Jesus Christ. Every word in the scripture points to Jesus and finds its meaning in him. Furthermore, John 1, 1 through 3, and Colossians 1, 16 tell us that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God by which the universe was created. And these two passages indicate that this saving work in the world was not an afterthought because of sin, but was, but was the eternal purpose of God. It was the plan of God before creation and from all eternity. Upon this plan, God created all things. If we can imagine God drawing out the plans for the universe before he created it, And if we could examine these plans, we would not see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus Christ and the gospel. Because of this, Jesus is the central reality of the scriptures themselves. The entire Bible points to him. 
It's easy to see this in the New Testament where it's more obvious since he's explicit, explicitly the focus of the Gospels and he's the focus of the letters of the New Testament. But I mean the entire Bible. It's saturated with signs pointing to Christ. In our text this morning from Hebrews, as the writer says, these words that God has spoken long ago at many times and in many ways through the prophets, those words were concerning Jesus. Let me give a few texts quickly to explain this. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 25 and 27, Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So if we don't see that, If we don't see what the prophets were saying, what they were talking about, that what they were saying was concerning Jesus, then we're being foolish or slow of heart, at least according to Jesus. And later in the same chapter of Luke, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So everything... Everything that's written in the Psalms and the law and Moses and the prophets, all of those things have things to say about Jesus. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If you want to understand the scriptures, you have to understand that they are about Jesus. And finally, in John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you would have life. So Jesus believes that we should read our Bibles, our Old Testament, and see him. See Jesus. And I want to name a couple of themes from the Old Testament that help us do this. I want to name or highlight a couple recurring themes in the Old Testament that highlight, highlight a kind of dynamic in the Old Testament that can... Um, that can cut us in our hearts and cause us to appreciate the way that Jesus is the fulfillment of these realities. And in order to do that, in order to do that, I'm going to read sections from Ezekiel. The dynamic of idolatry, the dynamic of idolatry and God's covenant faithfulness, this constant, repeated, sinful pattern that human beings display is solved. That problem is solved through Jesus Christ. And we should understand these themes, themes of worshiping something other than God in our modern lives as spiritual adultery. The church is the bride of Christ, and when we devote our hearts to other things in our lives, we're committing idolatry, which is spiritual adultery. And the Old Testament uses imagery about this reality that is vile. It's vile, and it's visceral, and it is offensive on purpose. And this dynamic should point us to Christ. 
his sacrifice for sin and his blood of the new covenant. And in order to help us do that this morning, I'm going to read a lengthy section from Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 4. And it's on page 702 in the Bibles in your pews if you want to look, if you want to look it up. Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 4, page 702. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of those things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. This is what God did for each of us who love him and who trust him. I'll continue. In Ezekiel, I made you flourish like the plants of the field and you grew up and became full or you became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread my, the corner of my garment over you and I covered your naked, nakedness. And then I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with the ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. And you also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before you, and also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set them before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God, and you took your sons and you took your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed them to be devoured. And were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And a side note here for us in 2023, I know, I know, I know that we don't publicly set our children on fire. 
but we do sacrifice our children on the altars of convenience and comfort and control and being seen by others as good parents or to have our righteousness be seen by other people. As one author puts it, we always become like our idols and we always sacrifice our children to our idols. And I think she's right. This is a grotesque display of infidelity. It's wretched and it is ugly. And idolatry is not something that ancient, unsophisticated people do. It's what happens when we give our hearts to something other than God. When something else saves you, you have an idolatrous relationship with it. When something else satisfies your deepest longings, when your heart is directed and guided by something other than Jesus, it's infidelity. These, image are, these images are grotesque for a reason. It's to help us see the twisted realities of sinful idolatry. This is to help us see what's happening inside our hearts as we leave God for other lovers. John says to keep, keep yourselves from idols, little children. And Paul exhorts us to flee from idolatry. And we see in the Old Testament over and over and over again, God making promises to a people to be faithful, to be their God. And Israel fails over and over and over again. And God sends famine to get their attention. And he sends war to get their attention. And he sends the people into captivity to wake them up to the painful realities of what happens when you, when you serve other gods besides the living God. And finally, in a kind of crescendo, in order to turn their hearts back to him, he sends them a famine of his very word through the prophet Amos. In Amos 8, 11, and then centuries go by without God talking to Israel, without the prophets having a word for Israel. He sends a famine of his very word, and centuries later, that word becomes flesh and dwelt among his people. And what does he come to do? He comes to make the good news in Ezekiel 16 come true for all of us. Ezekiel 16, 60 says, Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord. You see, Jesus' blood is the way that God fulfills this promise. And it's the way that he fulfills his promises to us. 
Jesus is the center of this picture, and he's the center of the scriptures. Think of the garden, or the Sabbath, or the promised land. Think of the entire sacrificial system. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't atone for sin, doesn't do it. Think of the bread in the wilderness that, uh, that, was, that satisfied God's people for generations. Think of the water out of the rock and all the different covenants made throughout the Old Testament. They all point to a covenant that is Jesus' new covenant in his blood. Through Jesus, we get the presence of God in the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is the moment in the movie when the character thinks back and realizes how everything fit together to lead up into this point. And now everything fits together. Everything makes sense. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law for those who believe, which means which means for us that Jesus is the center of our lives. And at this point, I could say Jesus should be the center of our lives, but I want to explain why I worded it that way on purpose. In the clearest and truest reality, if Jesus isn't the center of your life, it doesn't really mean that something else is the center. It just means your life doesn't have a center. Like idols, if you worship them, you aren't serving a true God. You're serving stone or wood or a delusion or a superstition. But serving a false God doesn't mean you worship a different God. It really means that you serve no God at all. You might be serving yourself and you might be serving demons or spiritual forces in your life. But those things make lousy gods. Galatians 4, 8, and 9 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Before you knew Jesus, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Jesus is the only person who possesses the substance needed to pull a life into orbit. Without Christ, we're just flung out in every direction. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come. But the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the substance. He's the only thing that carries within himself the kind of glory, the kind of weightiness that can hold all the pieces of your life together. Without Christ, there isn't some other option or some other choice. Nothing else can do that. Nothing else can be that for you. You're lost or you're found in Christ. You aren't found by anything else. You're in darkness or you're in the light. There are multiple options for darkness, but there is only one light. You're either in him or you are outside of him. 
You're a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. And sin doesn't center anything. It eats and corrodes and destroys everything that it touches. The weight of Jesus displaces everything else in your life. And when we seek to make other things our center, when we try to force other things to be the center for us, when we try to place something else in a seat that only God deserves, then God will discipline us if we're his children. In his kindness, he will do this for us. He will bring pain into our lives to correct us and help us lean on him, help us look to him, help us love him. Hebrews 12 says, all all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So all discipline is painful. A word, a word here to our, to our parenting strategies. If it isn't painful, it isn't discipline. And the discipline of the Lord is his love coming to us, his commitment to us. The one who loves their child is careful to discipline them, Proverbs tells us. If we drift from the center and the center has a name, the name of the center is Jesus Christ. If we drift from center, if we drift from Jesus, our Father will love us enough through discipline to bring pain into our situation. And I know that I'm being, I know that I'm being provocative and edgy in a day when all hurt is considered evil and unwanted and unhelpful in and of itself. But the Bible reminds us that God hurts his children because he loves them. Indeed, Proverbs is clear. The person who avoids disciplining, disciplining his child is hating that child, not loving that child. Jesus is the center of the Christian life. He's the center of all of our joy and he's the center of all of our pain, all of our money and all of our poverty, all of our relationships and all of our stuff, all of our strategies and all of our plans, all of our dreams and hopes and longings, all of it, everything, everything, your life, your life as you see it displayed in front of you is a result of your heart. Your life is the result of what's in your heart. Do you obsess over controlling every single detail in your life? Are you making yourself miserable trying to force the center of your life to be something other than Christ? Are you making yourself miserable trying to force the center of your life to be success or money or property or just what you're comfortable with or power or esteem or ambition? Or is it darker than that? Is it illicit sex? Is it your family or your children or comfort or pills? Or just the relief you get from avoiding responsibility. Fill in the blank. 
Whatever it is that tempts you and tries to be the center of your life, whatever it is, if it isn't Jesus, it can't hold that position. It can't bear under that weight. And if you're God's child, he won't let you be deceived forever. Humans need a center. We're on the hunt for something to provide uh, a center for our lives. We need something to orient our passions around, our longings around. I don't care if it's drugs or fame or laziness. We're driven to be mastered by something, to be compelled by something. We will serve something, something to hang our hopes on, something to pour our devotion into. And if it isn't Jesus, whatever it is, it can't handle that kind of pressure. Jesus is the only thing that can actually function as an anchor for your soul. The universe was created through him and he's the center of history and he's the center of the scriptures and he alone can be the center of your life. And he just doesn't share that seat. So do the work this morning. I invite you to do work this morning of reflection and prayer as we move to close the sermon and move towards communion this morning. And when you, let me coach you in how you could do some self-reflection right now by saying the human beings don't let go of false centers easily. We don't let go of false kind of comforts or idols easily. In fact, we tend to clutch them with all of our might. We clutch on to false centers uh, really, really tightly. Um, It reminds me of an illustration from a children's book I read a long time ago called Where the Red Fern Grows. In this book, now I've never, I've never tried to interact with raccoons in any way, much less tried to trap or capture one. So I didn't fact check this. But the illustration still holds. In that book, as I remember from my childhood, there's a point where, some, where, where a group of people are trying to capture a raccoon and they set up a trap. They set up a trap for this animal. And the way the trap functions is there's a hole in a log or a box or something. There's a hole. At the bottom of this hole is something shiny, right? Something that gets the attention of this animal. And so he reaches in and he grabs it. But nails have been hammered in downward so that when the, when the animal tries to pull its fist out, it won't come out and it's stuck. And instead of letting go of whatever comfort we have in our bitterness, whatever comfort we have in our anger, whatever comfort we have in our envy, or whatever comfort we have making our children idols or our convenience idols, Whatever comfort that brings us, we'd rather hold on to it until our own destruction than drop it. Let it go and be free. And be free. Just like us, we become enamored and obsessed and we grab onto something and make it our everything, even though we're caught and enslaved by it. And in the end, it'll be our destruction. 
as we get ready to take communion, maybe you need to let something go. And that's something, I want to be specific, that something could be something really good in your life that's become something that you worship and love and refuse to live without. Or that something could be something sinful in your life. Maybe it's hidden or nurtured. Maybe it's easier to hide than sins that are on the outside. Some sins are harder to see and discern because they're deep, they're deep down inside of our hearts. Things like jealousy or bitterness or even self-righteousness. But I want to invite us this morning. I want to invite us to be free, free from an apology that somebody owes you and they're never going to give you. Free from some sort of situation that, that would be just if it went differently. Free from prideful arrogance. So I want us to spend just a second as we move to communion to think and ask and pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken us to something in our hearts that we need to let go of and lay a hold of Christ as the center of our lives instead. Amen. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware is wine and the glassware is juice. We will have a station, two in front of me, one in the balcony, and one single-serve gluten-free station over to my left. And then we'll also have prayer ministers underneath the window to my left that would love to pray for anybody, for anything, anytime. If you're a Christian in this room, if your aim and hope and desire is to center your life on Christ if you put all of your faith and hope in him and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection, in his imputed righteousness, if, if that's you, we invite you to come take communion this morning. And if that's not you, we invite you to stay in your seat. We are glad that you are here. Thanks for coming. But would you pray, uh, would you maybe uh, pray prayers on the back of the pews or sit and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Maybe pray with one of our prayer ministers or, um, or tell somebody. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he, would given, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us and the servers are going to come forward and the musicians are going to come back up. And after I'm done praying for all of those who are placed in faith in Jesus, come to the front and eat in faith. Would you bow your heads with me now as I pray? Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. Thank you that you died so that we could die 
and you came back to life so that we could be raised to newness of life. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the scriptures to us? Would you help us see our own hearts? I ask that you would unearth hidden presumptuous sins, ones that are harder to recognize. Give us the freedom of walking in the light and give us the freedom of repenting of those. Would you convict us and correct us? And would you comfort us and strengthen our faith? I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come up whenever you're ready.